I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Sheldon George, a professor of English and chair of the English department at Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts. His scholarship centers most directly on Lacanian psychoanalytic theory and applies cultural and literary theory to analyses of American and African-American literature and culture. He is the author of Trauma and Race, a Lacanian study of African-American racial identity and co-editor with Gene Wyatt of reading contemporary Black, British, and African-American women writers, Race, Ethics, Narrative, Form. He is currently completing a collection co-edited with Derek Hook for Rutledge Press that is titled Lacan and Race, Racism, Identity, and Psychoanalytic Theory. There is also a video of this discussion on YouTube, so if you're listening to the Rendering Unconscious audio stream, you're welcome to go to YouTube to watch the discussion at Tripart Films' YouTube channel. Just search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast or my name. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Tripart Books 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. I guess uh, we can talk about uh, my interest in psychoanalysis and, um, you know, my, my work sort of intersects psychoanalytic studies, um, particularly Lacanian theory and race theory. And um, I think uh, my scholarship started really with a question. It, it, it seems to me that there's a there's a central contradiction in how people relate to race. On the one hand, um, everyone agrees that race is an illusion. It's a fantasy, doesn't exist. It's a social construct. But on the other hand, everyone seems invested in race. No one wants to give it up. And so um, I you know, I was reading African-American scholars. I was reading people like Du Bois and um, more contemporary people like uh, Lucius Outlaw. And um, Du Bois talks about the need to conserve race. He, he argues that we need to conserve race for political reasons. So, um, you know, historically, race wasn't the thing that unified African-American identity. For the most part, it was religion. And um, religion was what formed community. Religion was what gave people a sense of meaning. But du, du Bois makes the argument that we need to shift from religion to race because he saw race as more capable of unifying people. So there's, there's this historical moment where um, African-Americans start to more fully embrace the concept of race because, as Du Bois says, it has this political utility. But um, what I find in reading the scholarship is that African-Americans like Lucius Outlaw um, 
they have this investment in race that goes beyond its political utility. Um, there's this sort of attachment that seems somehow illogical. And that's why I turned to psychoanalysis. So in Outlaw's work, um, yeah, Outlaw says that uh, we need to think of race as what he calls a cluster concept. Uh, instead of thinking of it um, as a concept that, um, he says we need to think of it disjunctively. So what that means is uh, we think of race as something that combines a number of characteristics uh, so that, for example, we say that Obama was our first Black president. But what is it that makes him Black when his mother is white? So thinking of race as a cluster concept means uh, if someone, you, you think in terms of physicality, physical appearance, you think in terms of ancestry, you think in terms of culture, and if one of those elements disjunctively um, are associated with blackness, then you're black. So this cluster concept sort of becomes like a contemporary version of the one drop rule, mm -hmm. right? One drop of black blood means you're black. And um, so, so for me, there was something strange about that, something that sort of went back to old ways of thinking about race that um, I think sort of needed psychoanalysis to make sense of. And um, there was a shift, right? Uh, it's not the case that, that this is an exact mirroring of how people thought of race in previous eras. You know, for example, um, uh, during times of slavery, people believed that race was a biological fact or people argued um, in, in ways that people found to be persuasive that race was a biological fact. You had scientists who would um, measure the size of people's cranium, right? And, um, you know, they, they made the argument that African-Americans had a lower cranial capacity, which impeded their um, ability to think rationally and which um, impeded their self-restraint. So, um, you know, at the same time, you had medical doctors who uh, had isolated what they called, um, you know, what they saw as um, different distinct biological uh, elements of, um, uh, of the African-American physiognomy that um, made it so that they're prone to specific diseases. So they talked about things like uh, what they called um, dropotomania, which, you know, it sounds scientific, right? And it's a term that this, this uh, doctor came up with um, that basically defines, um, tries to explain the reason that slaves run away. Um, the sense is that uh, this disease that affects only Blacks um, makes it impossible for them to understand their true station in life. And so they're trying to escape slavery because they, you know, it's, it's a sort of um, existential, um, um, a, a lack of awareness of one's status in the world, right? So that's different from how people think of race today. Today, people really recognize that um, race is not biological for the most part. Um, you know, they, they're still fooled by the eyes. They still look and, um, you know, they look at a brown person and, and describe that as black, or they look at, you know, they look at a white person and see whiteness as though it's, it's an actual literal color. Um, but for the most part, I think people have moved past this notion of a biological 
um, racial difference. So the question sort of became for me, um, what's driving this adherence to concepts of race? If, if we don't believe in um, biological differences. And um, that's when I started thinking in terms of Lacan's concept of the real. And uh, the real gave me a way to think about an agency that is outside of language, an agency that's outside of the symbolic. Um, and so um, this is, you know, this is an agency that makes logic falter, right? This is something that, that language sort of circles, gravitates around, um, but misses the mark of. And so I, I, I try to figure out what's at the center of this gap? You know, what is this emptiness? What is this thing that racial discourse is drawn to, but yet still doesn't name? And for me, that thing is slavery. Slavery as a trauma, not, not as a historical fact, but as a trauma. Trauma is something that escapes language, that is outside of the symbolic. It's this agency that determines and shapes the symbolic. And so I saw this traumatic past as something that is guiding the language of someone like Outlaw. Outlaw says, um, you know, um, there are no biological differences between races and we need to conserve race for political reasons. But even if, um, you know, invidious racism disappears today, we still need to conserve race. So, so if you're conserving it for political reasons, why conserve it when there's no longer a political need? And um, um, I think, you know, that's where you start to feel the impact of the traumatic past. And um, there seems to be a way in which people get attached to a painful past, which makes no sense outside of psychoanalysis, right? And um, that thinking about that led me to think in terms of Lacanian concepts like jouissance, which is precisely about um, the pleasure that one gets from one's pain. Right, jouissance is this excessive pleasure, um, this sort of libidinal pleasure. Uh, and um, it, thinking in terms of jouissance also allowed me to think in terms of the political moment in which I was writing the, the first book, um, Trauma and Race. Um, the book opens up with a discussion of um, the shooting of Jordan Davis by Michael Dunn. Um, this was, you know, right after um, Michael Dunn goes on trial right after George Zimmerman is acquitted. And, um, yeah, um, people don't remember this event, I think, today, but um, this this happened in... 2012, uh, and it, it was a big deal at the time. You know, uh, people thought people described it as the the, um, the red SUV case. It's uh, um, Jordan Davis and his friends are uh, driving. Uh, well, they're parked in front of a gas station, um, and Michael Dunn, uh, a 43-year-old white man. Um, is coming back from his son's um, wedding and he stops at the gas station and um, Jordan Davis is 17 years old. He's playing loud rap music with his friends uh, in their SUV and Dunn drives up next to them and, and the space uh, 
in in the part in the gas station's parking lot is tight. It's it's constricted space, and there's a way in which I think this sense of being um, being confined impacts uh, Michael Dunn psychically. It becomes um, representative of the sort of um, uh, influx of racial difference that's occupying both the physical and psychic space of his world. And, and he's, he's, he's so cramped that he can't even open his door fully and, he, and, and the music is also occupying psychic and mental space as it sort of, you know, um, flows into him. And um, he's, he's resistant to that. He calls the music rap crap. And, um, you know, he gets into an argument with the boys and he tells them to turn down the music. And, um, you know, we think of, 17-year-old teenagers and we think that, yeah, they're going to resist, but actually they turn it down. But then the argument continues and um, pretty soon he reaches into his glove compartment, pulls out a gun, they see the gun and they start to pull away. And as they're retreating, he fires 10 shots at them. He drops down on one knee as, as the um, the SUV is is moving off and he's shooting at the trunk. It's like a scene from a movie. Yeah. And so I was interested in that excess, 10 shots. Um, what are you shooting at? You know, what are you aiming at? Um, it seems as though he's he's shooting at something more than what's actually there. And again, uh, I think this is where you see um Jouissance, right? On the one hand, um, you know, Todd McGowan um, has a piece that uh, he's doing for the collection with um, Derek and I on Lacan and Race. And in that piece, he talks about how um, what, what police officers shoot at, what they attack is the fantasy of race. And that's why it's excessive, right? But there's also, I think, um, an excess that's tied to jouissance. Um, you're, you're aiming at, at the pleasure of the other. What really uh, irks Dunn is that these kids are enjoying when he's not enjoying, when he feels um, confined, they're completely liberated. And so, um, you know, there's there, this concept of jouissance, I think, uh, because it allows for that, from, for those sorts of analysis, uh, has become central to my thinking about race. And, and it, it goes hand in hand with another concept that Lacan uh, focuses upon called um, the object A. Um, the object A is the fantasy object. It's what is inside the other that uh, makes the other other. You know, um, Lacan has this concept that uh, he talks about, um, he calls it soul loving. And um, I, I make the argument that what's involved in race is a process of soul loving. We love the soul of people who are the same race as us. Um, and that soul is the fantasy object that's inside of them, right? So as we move from um, those scientific uh, medical notions of racial essence, um, and as we reject those concepts, we've moved to a sort of fantasy indistinct object that somehow inside of everyone who's of the same race and is um, distinct from, uh, from what's inside everyone who is of a different race, um, 
and this this object is both inside of me and outside of me it's inside of me making me my race but it's inside everyone else who is of my race and so it's it's a fantasy object that's both um, absent from me um, and also a part of me and and, and so it, it because it 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 occupies this uh, psychic image of absence, it has to be filled with my racial other. So there's a way in which I'm thinking about race as um, kind of like how uh, Lacan thinks of um, complementarity um, in, in sexual relations, right? Um, a man and a woman falls in love and, um, you know, they get married because they feel that, you know, their mate completes them. And there's a way in which race functions on a larger scale as an effort at complementarity. Um, my racial other is who I need to make me whole. And I think that's, uh, I think that works generally for race, but I, I think you see it particularly with African-Americans who, um, who I would suggest have been traumatized by a history of racism and have been encouraged to think of themselves as lacking. And so part of the way that you fill that lack is through the function of race. Race comes in and, um, fills you out, makes you complete, gives you a sense of wholeness. And I also noticed in your introduction, you talked about Jaluisance as well. Right, yes. So, um, yeah, th this is a concept that Lacan references a couple of times in the seminars. And um, sometimes he calls it um, jellisons, which is a sort of combining of jealousy and jouissons. And sometimes he calls it invidia, which sort of uh, has um, connotations of envy, right? Jealousy is, um, you know, envy is more about wanting something that you don't need, right? You're just envious that someone else has it. And um, in the seminars, uh, Lacan talks about St. Augustine, and St. Augustine sees this child who um, is sucking at the breast of, of, uh, of a mother. And um, 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 St. Augustine is looking at the response of the child's sibling. And what he sees in the child's sibling is envy. So um, Lacan talks about this process by which we turn pale with envy at the sight of someone else having the A, right? The sense that someone else has this object that makes, that makes them complete. And we're jealous of their possession because um, our sense is that they are enjoying instead of us. They are complete instead of us. They have the A, the object A, the fantasy object that we need to complete ourselves. And so I think a central part of racism is this competition over the object. And you can think of it historically um, as rooted in slavery. Um, that image that Lacan talks about, you know, the, the child looking at another child sucking at the breast of the mother, that's an image that would have been prevalent in times of slavery. Um, during slavery, the practice in the South and also in the North uh, was to have wet nurses who would, um, um, you know, who, who would uh, nurse white children. Um, so that visual image was a part of slavery. And, and the question is, you know, how does, what does it mean for the white psyche, for the little white child, uh, to suck at the breast of a black woman? Now, keep in mind that in this time period, um, 
milk was seen as a means of transmitting the racial essence of an individual, right? So this wild child, this white child is sucking in the black essence of the mother, has the object A and is sucking it into his body. But then as this white child grows up, what happens to him? He becomes the slave master. And his role then becomes to whip this substitute mother and the child whose milk he has stolen. So there's a way in which the white psyche gets formed in slavery um, through this competition over the A and um, through a sense of envy. And, um, you know, that, that process of uh, competing over the A extends across time. It's there in the Michael Dunn case. But um, I think, you know, one important moment for me is um, around the 1930s, I'm sorry, the 1830s or so, um, minstrelsy becomes um, the central form of an entertainment in America. And minstrelsy is all about, you know, painting your face black and um, pretending, um, you know, pretending you're a black man so that you can pre present blackness as buffoonery. But there's, uh, you know, there's, there's famous scholarship by a guy called Eric Lott who describes minstrelsy in terms of what he calls love and theft. What's happening in this time period is that there is a love of Black culture that gets stolen. Black culture gets stolen. It gets appropriated, um, particularly um, by poor whites who aren't quite seen as white in this time period. So one of the things that happens is that, you know, across time, it's, it's unclear who are white people. And um, some of the main performers of minstrelsy were um, Irish immigrants. And minstrelsy became a means for the Irish to become white. So in this time period, the Irish were seen, were seen as simian-like. Um, there are cartoons in which, um, you know, because many of them are seen as Catholic, um, there are cartoons of them uh, entering the shores of America, and um, they're depicted as alligators, and they're wearing the Pope's hat, and the Pope's hat uh, sort of comes to a point with um, teeth that, that become the alligator's teeth. And so the Irish are not appreciated, right? They're called, um, um, Blacks are called smoked Irishmen. And uh, the, the argument is that if you turn an Irishman inside out, you find a Black man. And their, their images, their cartoons where um, uh, you have an Irishman um, on one side of a scale and a Black man on the, on the other side of a scale, and they're being weighed as to their value, right? So, so there's a sort of collapsing of Blackness and whiteness in this time period, in part due to the fact that Blacks and, and, um, and Irish immigrants are living in the same communities. So the Irish needed a way to uh, separate from blackness, and minstrelsy became that way. Um, um, the performances, you know, for me, the performances become a sort of expression of what Lacan calls the drive. Um, they, they sort of tap into uh, not just elements of desire, but drive-like elements. Lacan talks about the drive um, in terms of um, rims on the body, right? So there's the oral drive, um, there's the scopic drive. It's these places where um, 
the body intersects with the external world. Um, and so what happens at the site of the drive is that enjoyment enters the body from the external world. And the drive, Lacan says, doesn't have an object. But what I'm interested in is the way that race reshapes or, or sort of um, agitates the drive in its trajectory. Um, it gives it a means of expressing itself. So what happens in minstrelsy is performers focus on the lips, for example. The lips of Black people become exaggerated, right? So there's, there's a sense that Black people are accessing an oral pleasure. They talk about Black people's love of watermelon, their love of chicken, their love of um, sugarcane, right? So it's, it's all of these images of a pleasure that enters into the Black body um, through um, th th these images that become um, conceivable through the concept of race, right? So the body becomes open to fantasies about the other's pleasure because of the concept of race. Um, and it's, it, it's a sort of conception of Blackness and of the Black body that I think has remained with us in, in really veiled ways. Um, there's a sort of dexterity in the performances of uh, these minstrel characters. Um, there's a famous song, um, Jump Jim Crow, every time I wheel and turn around, I jump Jim Crow. So there's this sort of dexterity and fluidity of the body that gets expressed in, um, in these minstrel performances. And they're often done um, in clothing that's oversized. So you get the sense of the performer's sort of childlike character. And part of what's interesting to me about this is that that then gets translated um, into cartoons. So when the cartoon industry develops in America, um, some of the artists were associated with minstrelsy. And so what you find is cartoon figures like Mickey Mouse, who isn't just minstrel-like, he is a minstrel, right? With the white gloves. And it, you know, it, it's, so, it, it's so overwhelmingly present. If, if you, I have two kids and they love Mickey Mouse. And um, they're, they're cartoons in which um, Mickey Mouse floats in a balloon and the balloon um, you know, a hot air balloon, and the balloon is uh, is in the shape of a white glove, of a white minstrel glove, right? And so you don't see it consciously, but the jouissance is there, right? So, so part of what's significant about the concept of jouissance is that it allows us to think about an agency outside of the symbolic, that structures the symbolic in an ahistorical fashion. It structures the symbolic across historical time periods, and it repeats across history because it is outside of the symbolic. And there's a way in which it may structure the human psyche. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about for um, the piece I'm working on uh, for the new book with Derek Hook on Lacan and Race is um, um, the idea of un unconscious bias. You know, what does that mean, right? Um, when people say unconscious bias, they're not really talking about the Freudian unconscious. But there's a way in which unconscious bias is a real thing that makes sense from a Lacanian perspective. Um, 
you know, Lacan talks about the agency of the signifier, the way in which the signifier um, dominates the signified, right? So if you think of the signified as, um, you know, one manifestation of the signified may be our emotions, right? Our feelings that have no meaning. They're just what Lacan calls an amorphous mass. They're meaningless. They just sort of float metonymically, right? Until they're given a meaning through the function of metaphor, right? Um, and it's the signifier that gives them meaning. So in terms of race, um, the signifier of your race tells you how you should feel about certain things. If you're a black person, you should feel a certain way about things. If you're a white person, you should feel a certain way about things, right? So it's the signifier that sort of defines um, our feelings. And what's interesting about Lacanian theory is that um, for Lacan and for Freud too, um, the agency of the signifier operates unconsciously too. And um, what you get in the unconscious is basically chains of signifiers signifiers that become linked through jouissance. So our modes of enjoyment, um, the ways that we learn to enjoy in the symbolic world, structure um, how our unconscious understands what brings it pleasure. And so the unconscious aims at the same sorts of pleasure over and over again. And I think that's, that allows us to think about the insistence and the, the, the continuous presence of racism in the American symbolic. The reason why racism continues is because we gain pleasure from it. Pleasure in, in the sense of jouissance, you know, in the sense of an excessive pleasure that is simultaneously painful. Yeah, it's a wonderful point. And I, I uh, think that your book is really changing the discourse um, around all of these issues. And the other thing I thought was really fantastic is that you pointed out that these perpetrators like Michael Dunn, um, that they like feel a sense of like self-annihilation. They're like fighting this sense of kind of being annihilated themselves. Like you said, they get, feel like they're being intruded upon and their sense of self is threatened. Yeah, yeah, there's, uh, yeah, uh, Malcolm X um, has this famous line where he, he talks about chickens coming home to roost. You know, there's a sense that um, the evils that Americans have done um, come back to um, avenge themselves upon Americans. And if you think in terms of the history of slavery and the history of colonialism, I think part of what we see in this historical moment is um, a newly present, um, well, a more pronounced uh, um, presence of racial otherness, right? So all of the people who have been colonized, who have been colonized are now moving into the mother country, right? That's part of what's happening in Europe, right? Um, and you know the 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 people who have been slaves and immigrants and who've been voiceless um, are gaining a voice, and you know this happens um, repeatedly across um, historical moments, right? There's a there's a scene in the book, the Great Gat the Great Gatsby, um, which takes place in the 1920s, which is right after you know, a couple of decades after slavery ends and African-Americans are moving into the cities. And um, um, the narrator of, of the novel is looking at a limousine cross a bridge. And in the limousine, he sees a white chauffeur and what he calls two modish black um, black men in the back seat. And so these modish guys are connected to modernism, they're connected to the changing environment, 
and they're connected to an inverted power structure. It's the white guy who's driving them, right? And it's them who are modish and who are stylish. And so I think there's this sense that the other is taken over, you know, the other is empowered. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's part of what people like Trump are um, banking on. That's, that's part of what he tries to communicate, the sense that, um, you know, there is what he calls a silent majority that has been silenced by the voice the emergent voice of the other. And so how do you fight back about, how do you fight back against that? Yeah, um, I think uh, we're sort of in a moment of crisis where um, everyone feels that they need to speak up, right? Where oppressed groups feel like we can't take this anymore. And, you know, we have to voice, um, our resistance to our conditions of existence. And um, other groups feel like, you know, I'm the one who should be speaking. I'm the one who should be empowered. I'm the one who should be in charge. And you're now coming and taking away my power. So I think that's part of that power structure. It's part of that struggle over the A, that struggle over, you know, how do I achieve a sense of completion? Um, it's a continuous process. Yeah, and it's such a fantasy that people have that other people have the object. <laughs> right. I mean, from, from Lacanian perspective, you know, everyone is lacking. Um, I, I think, so one of the concepts that I talk about um, in my work from Lacan is the concept of the Ate. Um, this, is, uh, this is a concept that comes from Lacan's ethics seminar. Um, and, and then he, he just sort of drops it after that, right? Lacan has a couple of concepts that just sort of pop in and then pop back out. But um, one of the ways that he talks about the Ate is as a barrier. And the Ate is, is an early rendering of Lacan's concept of the object A, the fantasy object. Um, but this barrier is connected to um, it, what it bars in Lacan is bliss, absolute satisfaction, right? If you cross this barrier, if you move past Ate, then you enter into the space of the real. You enter into complete bliss, complete self-destructive satisfaction, right? And that's what the subject aims at. Lacan's uh, um, example of the Ate is the image of the crucifixion. It's Jesus on the cross. So Jesus is the barrier. And the function of that crucifixion, Lacan says, is at once to attract all of the threads of our desires. So we are drawn to God. We are drawn to, to the beyond through the figure of Jesus, but also to protect us from directly collapsing with the beyond. And I think race functions as that ate. It functions as the thing that promises us absolute bliss. It promises, it promises us wholeness. You know? um, if we unify with the racial order, or if we kill the racial order, right? if we lynch the racial order, then we will remove this impediment and um, facilitate our access to absolute pleasure. Because it's the other who is, you know, the problem. It's not lack that's the problem. It's not psychic structure that's the problem. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I think there, there's a lot of utility to Lacanian theory um, in terms of thinking about the pain that racism creates. But I think there's also uh, ways in which it allows us to think about survival, right? To think about, um, you know, to recognize that no one has complete pleasure. Um, no one has access to complete bliss. Everyone is lacking. But then um, it, it sort of gives us a window into thinking about things like 
how do you how do you survive? How do you make do um, when you are confronted constantly with lack, as African Americans have been historically? So part of what I've been thinking about through Lacanian theory is the way that, you know, to use a phrase from Allison, the way that African Americans make a way out of no way. Um, Ralph Ellison has this interesting scene in the book, um, Invisible Man. There's this character called True Blood. And um, True Blood is, I, I mean, this just calls for psychoanalytic interpretation. True, True Blood is in the midst of a dream. And he's having a dream about, an, um, about a white woman um, who takes off her night gun and exposes herself to him. And um, as he's having this dream, he's sleeping in a bed with his wife and his daughter. They're sharing a bed because they're too poor to afford firewood. And when he wakes up, he, he is having intercourse with his daughter. And... Um, he describes it as being, um, being in a tight space. And he's trying to figure out, how can I get out of this tight space? Because if I move, that would be a sin. So I can't move, so then I can't get out. So he, he, he says, the only way I can get out is with a knife, right? So castrate myself, right? And so for me, it's, it's a sort of metaphor about how do African-Americans get out of tight spaces and yet still achieve some level of psychic pleasure, psychic contentment. Um, and you know, it's a tough question. What do you do? Um, uh, Richard Wright has uh, another example where he's in an elevator and you know, um, his hat falls and the white man picks it up and puts it on his head. And he can't say thanks to the white man because that would mean that the white man rendered him a favor, which would make the white man, you know, servant-like. And he can't ignore it either. So what he does is he sort of bumps into the wall and lets all of the boxes that he's holding fall. So he avoids the situation, right? So how do you regain a sense of pleasure in a condition of lack? And I think um, that's what African-Americans have been doing. Um, you know, I mentioned the concept of soul loving. I think um, what you see in slavery is the way that African-Americans construct a concept of the soul that, um, that is liberating a concept of the soul that they tie to religion. Um, Lacan describes the soul and the A as tied to concepts of being, concepts of one's existence. And um, historically, um, you know, going back to Aristotle and Plato, people have talked about being as connected to a chain. They've talked about a chain of being that's hierarchical. Um, and in this chain of being, you have um, you know, a sort of uh, segregated layering, kind of like Dante's Inferno. At the top, there's God, then there's the angels, then there's uh, um, animate um, living beings, and then there's inanimate objects, and then there's subdivisions within the categories, so that among the living beings, they're the whites on top, and then other races, and all of this gets, you know, described by scientists in the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, um, and it becomes a way of thinking about racial difference hierarchically, and it becomes a way of depriving people of color of a sense of being. So how do you recuperate that sense of being? Um, um, for, um, 
for people like Descartes, you know, it's, it's the cogito. It's, I think, therefore I am. And that cogito be, becomes a way of, um, of disempowering African-Americans who are seen as lacking in intellect and who are not allowed to read. And so the act of reading becomes an act of resistance for African-Americans. It becomes a way of asserting one's sense of being, but also religion becomes a way of granting African-Americans a sense of being that is tied to a fantasy notion of a soul that African-Americans generate for themselves through a, a sort of um, syncretic uh, melding of African religions with um, Christian um, uh, religious concepts. There's, there's this one image that, um, that's prevalent in some African-American folktales. Uh, there's a guy called um, High John the Conqueror, not the Conqueror, High John the Conqueror. And um, High John is uh, a figure that travels on the slave ships in the winds, travels above the slave ships, I would say, in the winds um, as slaves are being brought to America. And as slaves are working on the plantation, High John is there in the background, unseen by the slave master. And in the folk tales, you know, High John has um, foot races with the angels and he travels with the slaves to heaven. And, you know, he, he generates, what he generates is an image of overcoming, an image of African-Americans as capable of making a way out of no way. And the way that they do that is by generating this concept of a soul that even if it's not saved here in this world, it will be saved in the next. But really the source of agency for that concept of the soul was this world. It was really a way of how to survive in this world. But, um, you know, the, uh, the, I, I think the, the final um, problem with this concept of the soul for me is that what moves from a religious concept, as I said with Du Bois, um, becomes a concept of race as the thing that's inside you. So the soul historically becomes trans transformed into race as the essence of the people and as the thing that will allow African-Americans to make a way out of no way. Is there anything else you wanted to be sure to mention or did you want to stop with that? Uh, one thing, um, the book, the new book that's coming out, Lacan and Race, Derek Huck and I are busy working away with it. People should keep an eye out for it. Um, we submit um, next month. So it'll probably be out, I don't know, maybe six months after. Um, it's coming out through um, Rutledge Press as part of uh, the... Um, psychology and the other series that's edited by David Goodman and it should be exciting. We have some really great people in it. Um, Todd McGowan, uh, Hilary Neroni, uh, Molly Rottenberg, um, you know, with some really interesting pieces. Uh, Lacan's um, relationship to the Japanese language. Um, you know, he says the Japanese have no need to be analyzed. So what's that about, right? Because of their language. Um, so some, some great pieces on, um, um, I don't know, uh, uh, monuments, you know, really timely pieces on um, Confederate monuments and their removal, um, pieces on um, colonialism, Fanon, and everything. So it's a really exciting project, and um, I think people will really enjoy it. 
Yeah, well, my goal is to get both of you on here when it comes out to talk about it, but we'll see how long that takes to schedule between both of your schedules. <laughs> this did take us a, a while to get that. And right? same when I talked to Derek, so we'll see. Maybe we'll start planning it, like, now. <laughs> yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. I also wanted to thank you. The Freud Museum has been doing such amazing uh, events online, and I want to thank you for your presentation as part of uh, Jordan Osserman's kind of weekend on sexuality and trans and gender identity. Yes, that was great. That was great. It seems as though the museum may be um, in trouble financially, so um, um, I guess we should encourage people to, you know, um, patronize it and do whatever they can to support it, too. Yeah, they've just put a bunch of um, past events on up online for on demand so that people can watch them now. And that one is one of them. So I will definitely link to that. Oh, ah, how terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> is there well, anything else? I think that's it. Thank you very much for having me. This was great. I look forward to the next time with Derek. Good. <laughs> Thank you, Sheldon. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Sheldon George. For more, please visit the text accompanying this episode for links to his work. Check out his book, Trauma and Race, a Lacanian study of African-American racial identity. And his book co-edited with Jean Wyatt, Reading Contemporary Black, British, and African-American Women Writers, Race, Ethics, Narrative, Form. Keep an eye out for his upcoming collection, edited with Derek Hook for Rutledge, Lacan and Race, Racism, Identity, and Psychoanalytic Theory. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.